0: chapter 17, John chapter 17, we're going to continue in this prayer of Jesus, Uh, he's been praying it for two weeks, so we're going to help him finish tonight, yeah we came to it two weeks ago, last week was our worship night, that was just precious, thank you so much for being here, I loved it, it was great being out on the hillside like that, we'll do it again the first Wednesday of August and the first Wednesday of September, so uh, come on out for that fellowship. But so it's been two weeks and we're coming back to it now. We're going to kind of pick up where, right where we left off. We got as far as verse 11 and we'll continue on through the rest of the chapter tonight. But you know, if you want to know what matters most to someone, listen to them pray. Listen to them pray. If you want to know what's really in someone's heart of hearts, where they're real, desire. And I'm not talking about religious prayer, and I'm not talking about you know that 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 churchy kind of thing. I'm talking about someone who is crying out to God, perhaps with a group of friends, or or, or a husband and a wife, or or just you know any time that that kind of prayer happens, just honest, real, unadorned prayer, which honestly is the kind of prayer that Jesus prayed. Honest, real, unadorned, just straight truth. It's he prayed his heart. And if you want to know what matters most to someone, listen to what they pray. Not even how, but but what? What are they saying? I remind you from two weeks ago, Mark chapter one, verse 35, in the early morning while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left, and went away to a secluded place and was praying there. Luke 5, 16, Jesus would slip away to the wilderness and pray. Luke 6, 12, he went off to the mountain to pray and spent the whole night in prayer to God. And I think, what a blessing It would have been to, I don't know, be a fly on the tree, (laughs) a bird in the branches, to, to sit and just quietly listen in during those sweet hours of prayer when Jesus was talking to the Father. By the way, do you realize that the Trinity explains Jesus praying to God? There's no other way to explain it. People who say, well, how could Jesus, if he's God, how could he pray to God? Because God's triune. He is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He's all three, absolutely equal, but three distinct personalities according to the Bible. And where that's mind-blowing, good, he's God. (laughs) You're not. But it explains him praying, Son, to Father in that perfect unity. So I, I can tell you this much. You can know that whatever was on Jesus' heart to pray was on the Father's heart to answer. Because they're so unified. They are one. And we are talking about monotheistic faith, one God in three persons. But to be there with Jesus and listen in, all those many times, and we don't have them recorded. We have him teaching what we really should call in Matthew 6 the disciples' prayer. Because that's where the disciples said, teach us to pray. And so Jesus says, Pray this way. It's not the Lord's prayer, it's the disciples' prayer. He's teaching them how to pray. This is the Lord's prayer. Because this is from the heart of Jesus, John 17. The high priestly prayer, right, of David Shetraeus or the, or the holy of holies, according to John Knox. This personal prayer of Jesus, hey, this is that blessing. This is the blessing of listening in while Jesus prays. This is us sneaking up on the mountainside hiding just behind a rock while Christ the rock prays to the father we get to hear it we get to listen but it's not just a blessing to listen to Jesus pray along with the blessing of observation is the beauty of instruction because we learn how to pray even more so i think from this prayer that Jesus lays it out in this genuine manner so in our last study we ended with several insights on how to pray like Jesus, praying like Jesus. Here they are. Let me just refresh your memory. You don't have to jot these down if you already have, but pray lifting up your eyes to heaven. Remember, that's how this whole prayer starts. He lifted up his eyes to heaven and prayed. He didn't bow his head and fold his hands. You can do that. There's nothing wrong with that. It's, it's the Puritan way of praying. That's fine. Puritans got a lot of stuff right. But Jesus lifted up his eyes. Pray lifting up your eyes. I'm not even talking physically as much as spiritually. Pray looking beyond this world. Pray uh, away from this world. Pray looking beyond yourself. Lift up your eyes and pray. Secondly, we said pray with the glory of God in focus. Let that be the substance and the focus as you come into prayer. And the more you pray the glory of God, the more unconcerned you're going to be with the articulation or the pronunciation or the elocution that others are listening for in you. You don't have to worry about impressing anyone because you're talking to him. And you're concerned with his glory, not your impression. So pray glorifying God. Thirdly, we said pray confidently. Not resigned to the fate of your life, but aligned in the faith of your life. Aligned by faith. Faith in what God is giving you to pray. Faith that Jesus is listening and interceding. Faith that his his spirit is also interceding with groanings too deep for words. Pray confidently in faith, not resignedly in a life that is tanking or lost. Pray confidently. Like Jesus, we said the fourth thing, belonging to the Father. Just pray belonging to the Father. Jesus refers to his Father throughout the prayer, his pater in the Greek, his Abba in the Hebrew. Romans eight fifteen says, you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you have received a spirit of adoption. Adoption of sons, by which we cry out, Abba, Father. So, Pray, lifting your eyes to heaven. Pray with the glory of God in focus. Pray confidently. Pray like Jesus belonging to the Father. And finally, we said, pray like you've left the building. Pray like you're already home or that you're headed there. No looking back, no equivocating, no wavering. Look ahead. You are in Christ by grace, listen to me, home free. You are home free. And it's from the moment you receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you were home free. Your salvation secure. So pray that way. Pray with that confidence. Jesus said in Luke 9:62, no one after putting his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. He's not trying to shame people. He's saying, keep your eyes ahead. Don't be looking back, Lot's wife, you salty gal. Look ahead to where you're headed. Hebrews chapter. Thank you for at least giggling (laughs) on salty gal. A bunch of you are going salty guys. Look that up. (laughs) All right. So so pray, knowing where you're going. Hebrews chapter ten verse thirty seven says, "In yet a very little while, he who coming who is coming will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. If he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. Right now, as we talked about Sunday, we stay until he comes." but he is coming. So we live with that in focus. The other thing we talked about last time in the first 11 verses was looking at this, we realize the content of the prayer itself gives us an outline for the prayer, and that's what we've been following. As Jesus first prays for himself in the first five verses, and then he prays for his apostles in verses six through 19, and then suddenly he's praying for us as well, his church, verses 20 through 26. 26. Or if you want to put it another way, we said the glorification, the sanctification, and the unification. The glorification of God, the Father, and the Son begins this, first five verses. The sanctification of the disciples both then and now, verses six through 19, and then verse 20 through the end, the unification of the church. So as we pick up in verse 12, we're still in the second section. We've covered the glorification of God at the beginning of the prayer, and now we're into the sanctification of the disciples. And I already spilled the beans on Sunday, and you're included. I'm included in this sanctification call for the disciples. Remember that sanctification, big church-sounding words, sanctification doesn't just mean cleansing or washing As we read in Ephesians 5, 25, and 26, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. She's clean so she can be sanctified. And we talked about what sanctified means is to be set apart. We're cleansed and purified so that we can be of holy use to God, like the utensils in the temple. Set apart for a holy purpose. That's you. That's me in this life. might not always feel so holy, but you are set apart for a holy purpose. That's sanctification. 2 Timothy 2.21, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, and Paul's talking about wickedness and worldly chatter and ungodliness, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Sanctification, and that's the second section of this prayer where Jesus is saying to sanctify his disciples. He will say in a moment, sanctify them in the truth. It's all about sanctification now, but as Jesus prays for sanctification, he stops and recognizes one who failed to be sanctified. Verse 12, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, And not one of them perished, but the son of perdition, so that the scripture would be fulfilled. What other book, tell me, tells the betrayer foreseen with such painful accuracy a thousand years before the betrayal happened? That's the wonder of scripture. Why do you believe in this book, Rick? Well, because it's proven itself time and time again through prophecy. We read the Older Testament prophecy, 500, 700, 1,000 years, 1,500 years old, speaking of this first advent, this first coming of Jesus, and we see it fulfilled, and it was fulfilled historically in real time. Something spoken 1,000 years ago that we see played out, and it's with stunning accuracy, even the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, the son of, Of perdition. David wrote in Psalm 41, verse 9, again, this is a thousand years before Judas was even born. David wrote, even my close friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, as you'll see in John that Judas eats the bread that Jesus gives him, who ate my bread, even my close friend has lifted up his heel against me. Or Psalm 109, verse 6, appoint a wicked man over him. Let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few and let another take his office, the office of apostle, and another would fill it. There are those who, sadly, tragically, like Judas, when standing close to Jesus, even at his right hand, can really look the part and still miss the person for whom they stand so near. Some who will show up to church, some who will talk the talk, act the part, but don't don't know Jesus. They might even know the word of God, the written word. They might be able to quote scripture and explain scripture and give the Greek and the Hebrew. The question is not, do you know the Greek words? The question is, do you know Jesus? Judas walked with him so close. Judas is, in my mind, the most tragic figure in all history. He takes the cake. He gets that award, if there is one, for the absolute most tragic, because this was a man who stood on the edge of glory itself, a utensil slotted for the most holy use, but who instead chose to become a son of Of perdition. And that phrase, son of perdition, means son of waste. The wasted life of Judas Iscariot, son of waste, heir of ruin, successor of destruction. We're called sons, all of us. We read that verse just a moment ago. That by we are adopted as sons. Men and women were adopted as sons. That is, we have positional sonship with we are heirs to the kingdom. We are have an inheritance as sons. All of us, like a firstborn, has an inheritance. Judas had that within his grasp, but he chose instead to be a son, an inheritor of destruction. The son of perdition. The apostle became the Apollaeus which is destruction. Offered the sonship of salvation. He chose rather to be a son of waste. The word huios typically speaks of an heir. And truly, you can call Judas an heir. Huios, an heir of apoleos, ruin, an heir of destruction, the son of perdition, because he is an heir. He is heir to his father, not Simon Iscariot, his dad, his earthly dad, but Satan. Judas becomes an heir of his father, Satan. How can you say his father, Satan? Because Judas became Satan-possessed. Satan literally, do you remember the verse? Uh, John chapter 13, verse 27. After the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Which is why Judas shares the title, of son of perdition he shares the title, there's one other you Bible students know called the son of perdition in the New Testament and that is Antichrist the one who is coming Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 let no one in any way deceive you for the day of the Lord will not come until the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction Hohios teis apoleos the son of perdition. It's the exact same phrase, the same name that Jesus hears, he's praying, with broken heart, mind you, gives to Judas. I kept everyone, but the son of waste. Son of waste. And now that same title, Paul turns around and uses it for Antichrist. It says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, the one who's coming is in accord with the activity of Satan with all power and signs and false wonders, and that's Antichrist. Any life, any life given over to the devil is a life that is wasted. That's the tragedy of missing Jesus, and some come so close, some stand beside him, some listen to him speak or hear him pray or sit in Bible study, and they just don't get there because you don't get there by fact. You don't get there by proof. You get there by faith. There has to be a moment in every one of our lives where we step across that line and say, all right, I trust you, God. And I'm gonna trust what you tell me. So you showed me that this is true. You you bring this to light. I am gonna step out and believe you for who you claim to be, Jesus. And that step of faith kicks the door open. The facts are there. The proof is there. The evidence is there. The historical and archeological truth, it's all there, but it's the faith that we have, we take that step. Judas never got there. Never, Rick? Never. I I don't believe personally that Judas ever got there. Bible tells us the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. Judas just never got there. He was always a thief himself. He was always deceitful himself. The special mention of Judas in this personal prayer of Jesus tells us something, and that is that even as this betrayal is underway, because remember, Jesus is praying, they're coming to the garden, he's praying somewhere between the temple mount and the garden, and he's praying, and at the same time, Judas is on his way. Satan possessed Judas, and the Roman cohort, and the chief priests officers are coming, and he's praying this prayer, and It tells us while he's praying this high priestly, holy of holies, wonderful prayer for the church of 2,000 years that Judas was still on Jesus' mind, still in his heart. Jesus alone knew the historic and the eternal depth of what I would call the Judas disaster that Judas was already the son of waste. He was already a, a life wasted. His betrayal had yet to reach its fatal end, but his heart was already long gone. How do you know? John 12, verse 4, Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, was intending to betray him. John chapter 12, verse 6, he was a thief, and as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. This is throughout the ministry. And then John 13 verse 2 during supper the devil having already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray him so we know it was already on his heart already in his mind he was already ready to betray he had been a thief throughout the ministry he was untrustworthy why does Jesus give him the money box well partially because Jesus is really not concerned about money if you steal from Jesus he's going to get it somewhere else steal from the church God's going to take care of the church you better beware But he's stealing from Jesus. Jesus gives him the money box. He gives him a position of trust. He holds him very close to himself. Why? Because Jesus is always concerned with the heart. Regardless of what even the outside behavior is doing, Jesus is concerned with the heart. And I am convinced that's why he chose Judas in the first place. He didn't choose Judas to condemn him. In fact, even when Jesus says that None perish but the son of perdition so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Yes, he fulfilled scripture. It's not what God wanted. It's not that God desired. Let's see, out of all humanity, let's pick one guy to go straight to hell. And he'll be the betrayer. That's Judas. God knew by his foreknowledge what Judas was going to do. And because of that, listen to this, because of that foreknowledge, Jesus gets a hold of Judas and pulls him as close as he possibly can for three and a half years. Why? Well, they say, keep your friends close, but keep your enemies even closer. That's not it. He didn't keep Judas close to him to keep an eye on him so that he wouldn't betray him before his time was up. He kept Judas close to give Judas every opportunity to change his mind, to repent to not go through with it. Yeah, but Jesus knew he would go through with it. Yeah, but he still gave him every opportunity not to. That's grace. That is the grace of God in Jesus our Lord. And yet, for every opportunity that Judas had, more than any of us here tonight, being right there with Jesus day in and day out, to turn to him, to repent of his wicked thoughts, to repent of his thievery, and you know what Jesus would have immediately done? He would have said, I don't condemn you. Go your way and sin no more. He would have forgiven him. But in spite of all that, the life of Judas Iscariot is just one of tragic waste. Something else here in this momentary mention of Judas, Jesus also says, of the rest of them, not one of them perished. Not one of them perished. Now, that's in the aorist tense, which we've talked about, tends to be past tense, but it can be continuous, It can be past, present, or future. It's kind of a loose tense, and it can be ongoing. Not one of them perished or are perishing or would perish. That's a wonderful statement, that not one life of the other 11 apostles would be wasted, because when a life is given to Jesus, he holds on tight. When you give your life to Jesus, you're going to have hills and valleys, but he is holding on to you. He is holding on tight. My sheep hear my voice, John 10, 27. I know them. They follow me. I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who's given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And that's wonderful. Not one of them perished, but you know what? We can counter this. Jesus makes this claim, not one of them perished. (laughs) Well, Lord, they certainly all betrayed you and they denied you and they fled from you. Like hours from this prayer, they're gonna run. Have you ever wondered how God can be so good to you now knowing all the things that you did then? How can he be so good to me when I was so bad to him? It's not because of you. It's because of him. It's because of who he is. It's because God being rich in mercy, Ephesians 2, 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, lost in our sin, clueless as clueless can be. I added all that. He made us alive together with Christ. And Paul inserts, by grace you have been saved And he raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show us the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in in Christ Jesus. Paul goes on to say, it's by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. It's all him. How can God be so good to me now when I was so bad to him then? Because he's good because that's God, because of who he is, and any life that seems wasted can be redeemed, any life. So long as you are drawing breath on this planet, the wasted life can be redeemed, and I've seen lives that were wasted up to the ripe old age of 11 or 12, and I've watched them get redeemed, And I've seen lives lived right up to the ripe old age of 89 or 90 years old and be redeemed. And I've heard more than once adults coming to faith in Jesus Christ and being baptized and receiving the Holy Spirit and turning their lives over and becoming born again believers. And I hear them say, oh, I wish I'd done this 40 years ago. And what's marvelous is the Lord will redeem those 40 years. He restores, Joel 2 tells us, the years that the locust has eaten. All that you thought was waste, you know what? Guess what? It all led to this point where you chose Jesus. And any life, whether you're choosing Jesus at 11 or 12 or 89 or 90, any life that comes to that point and chooses Jesus is a life saved, not wasted. Because all we got in this life, all we've got to do is come to that decision. That's the crux. That's the whole issue of our lives, coming to faith in Jesus. Our ministry is coming, (laughs) you know, in the kingdom. And if you've given your life to Jesus, you all know this 10, 20, 30 years ago. Well, now you're staying, stay until he calls us home so that we can bring other people to him. So we can serve and minister for him. But any life that is given over to Jesus is not a life wasted, regardless of what is behind us. That is such an amazing grace. Amen? That's Jesus. So verse 13, after praying about Judas and saying he was lost, his life was a waste, but none of the others were, he says, but now, verse 13, I come to you, and these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves. We talked about that jubilation, that fullness of joy that Jesus offers. No one else can give you this, his joy. Verse 14, I've given them your word and the world has hated them because they're not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And the question is, are we or are we not? Are we of the world Or are we not of the world? And how does that play in our lives? That's one of the more practical questions we can ask ourselves. Based on how I'm living my life behaviorally, my activities, my choices, am I of the world? Am I a worldly man? Are you a worldly woman? Or am I so of the Lord that the world just doesn't taste so good anymore? Am I or am I not of the world? Yes, Jesus is asking us to stay in the world, but not to despair, not to embrace evil or unclean things, not to isolate ourselves or insulate ourselves, not to assimilate or seek the approval of the world. And we talked about all that on Sunday. As Jacob writes, James chapter four, verse four, you adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. You know what? When you speak the truth, it's amazing what you can get away with saying. (laughs) You adulteresses, he says. How dare you call me an adulteress? Well, if you're the bride of Christ, but you're making out with the world, what are you? (laughs) Hey, truth is truth. One of the things I love about that little letter of of Jacob, the brother of Jesus that we call James, I love that letter because he just nails it. It's hardcore, but it's true. Friendship with the world is to make yourself an enemy of God and and it's very black and white to, to him by the Holy Spirit giving us the word. We need that conviction. How is my life playing in this world? Am I in it but staying for Jesus or am I of it assimilating in a, and seeking its approval? Verse 17, Jesus said, sanctify them in the truth. Remember, sanctify them. Set them apart in the truth. You're already cleansed. You're already washed. When you come to Jesus and you're born again, you are clean. Now you're to be sanctified. And the sanctifying work is a work that sets us apart, calls us out from. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And this is revelational to me because we're not studying the Bible to get cleaner when we're already clean. We're studying the word to set us apart from the world for holy use. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, Jesus says, I also have sent them into the world. Remember what that means, incarnationally. He came representing the Father. We come representing Jesus. For their sakes, I sanctify myself, set myself apart, make myself a vessel of holy use. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they themselves also may be sanctified, set apart, used for holy purposes in truth. In truth, holy living, holy use. And let me remind you, we talked about on Sunday that Jesus sanctified himself. Jesus, being perfect and pure and already clean, set himself apart for holy use as the vessel that would go to the cross and purchase our redemption. That was his mission. He sanctified himself for the redeeming work of the cross. And he did it so that we could first be washed and then be sanctified as bearers of that redemption. I love how Paul puts it. This is just perfect, and we've read this many times, but this is this is the sanctified life. Listen, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things have passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now, all things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us now the ministry of reconciliation, namely, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself and not counting their trespasses or sins against them and he has committed now to us the word of reconciliation therefore we are ambassadors for christ as though god were making an appeal through us we beg you on behalf of christ be reconciled to god that's our life purpose So really it comes down to two things in your entire span of your life. One, a life not wasted is the life that receives Jesus Christ as Lord. You make that decision, your life is not a waste. But once you've made that decision, once you've received his lordship, stay. Stay in a sanctified place, ministering the same truth to the rest of the world. And at the heart of a sanctified life, we come now to what I would call a profound agreement, and this is part three, the unification of the church. The unification of the church. Verse 20, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us. Man, don't devalue or dismiss the significance of, of the church or your place in it. There's, there's too much of that. You know, we, we have a right as Christians to judge the household of God, right? Peter says that, now it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God. So we need to be discerning among ourselves and we need to judge our behavior and, and how, we, how we are in the world. But, but I love the church and, and the value and the significance and the importance of the church in the fading days of this age, cannot be overstated. Which is why Paul said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Ephesians chapter four, verse one, verse two, with all humility and with gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That is the highest aim of unity in the church is not for the church. This unity that we're being called to, this peace that we're called to have is not so that we can feel more comfortable on a Sunday morning and not be, you know, disturbed by someone two rows back. Listen to what Jesus said again in verse 21, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. That's what the unity's for. Hey, the unity that I I share with Bill and Susie, this is great. We share a love of Jesus. We share a love of his word. We share a love of things coming and prophecy and all the conversations we've had. We share that. We're very tight on those things. But that unity, as wonderful as it is between the three of us, is not for the three of us. It is for the world around us. The unity of the church is for the world so that they might also believe and this is so important for us to comprehend. why Why is it that our unity is so that the world may believe that God sent Jesus? I'll tell you why, Because nothing else could explain such unity and diversity that we see in the church. Nothing but supernatural, the supernatural work and love of God could explain how a people so distinct and unique and and, and disparate in our views, in our professions, in our lives, are all drawn together by the person of Jesus Christ. Show me another institution anywhere that has that kind of drawing to it, that unifying reality of one person who stands in the midst and everyone is drawn to the one. The unity of the church says to the world there's something to this. There is something here. It is faith in Jesus that holds us together. It's faith in Jesus that draws us together. Tom and Jackie, we're, we're longtime friends. We've been at this 25 years together. And I don't know that we ever would have met each other if not for Jesus. Jesus drew us together. I have fond memories of sitting in the, in the basement of your home in, in, in small group years ago. And a different fellowship, mind you, unified by the person of Jesus. That's how it works. He brings us together. I'm not really telling you anything new except that He's the unifying bond, not the fact that we're all Republicans. <laughs> Someone's going, I'm not a Republican. Don't worry about it. Jesus. Jesus <laughs> is the drawing factor. And when I say things like that, you know, I, I get some people and they'll go, yeah, maybe I'm a little too strong in my politics. No, I'm not, I'm not concerned about that. You know, be, be strong in your politics. Have personal conviction. By all means, be firm. But just make sure your faith is informing your belief, that your faith is informing your politics. But, but the point is this. There's nothing else that draws us together but Jesus Christ. He is the drawing factor. And I love Jesus and Jake loves Jesus and we have become brothers because of Jesus. And that's how that works. He's a unifying bond. Let me, let me draw back from this a little bit because this applies directly to the church. And I know some of you are thinking, yeah, but the church is so divided. With denominations and separate fellowships and even in independent churches, you have two or three dotted all right around here. Why aren't they all meeting at the same place? In the same? Well, because they don't all have the best pastor. I'm talking about less. Come on. No, no. You know, all this, all these different flavors and everything. Boy, I'm going to get in trouble for that. Listen, the problem with the church being divided up is the same problem we see with marriage in the world. And that is this. People are still looking for what they call true love. And it wasn't him. So it'll be him. It wasn't her, it'll be her. Really? Okay, you know, try it out. See how it works for you. I'm not advising that, but people are looking for Mr. Right. Ladies, there is no such thing. Thank you. (laughs) Daryl's going, you know what? Guys are looking for Miss Perfect. Guys, she's not out there. You will not find her. And what happens is, and I did this. I I did this with Cheryl. I was looking to check the boxes. I had my list. You know, in my brain, I mean, I didn't write it out. I'm not that weird. Some of you are, but I wasn't. (laughs) And I have my list. And I'm going down like, she loves Jesus. Top of the list, check. She's pretty cute. Check and, and just straight down the list. And, and what's funny is she loved Jesus, was at the top. That was the most profound, deepest, most important thing to me. Everything else was superficial till I got down to about number 10. Then it started to get deep again. But anyway, I, <laughs> checking the box, checking the box, checking the box. Why am I checking the box? Because I'm looking for someone to meet my needs. And that's why marriage fails, because I want someone to meet my needs. A marriage that is successful is when both partners finally come to the point and realize, and it really takes both to get there, realize that the only way for this to work is for me to look out for her needs. To actually put hers ahead of my own, as hard as that is sometimes, still can be difficult. You want to do what? Okay. We'll go to Ghana. Okay. You can... Go horseback riding. I'm not saying anything else, Vicky. I'm just keep that that little story between us. I'm, I'm saying this. I'm 36 years into learning that unity is only developed in a marriage by unconditional, self-sacrificial love. And I did not come into my marriage with that attitude. And Cheryl can back me up on that. I was checking boxes, and people do the same thing with the church. I come checking boxes. I, I want to seek out a church or a fellowship that fills my needs rather than asking the the better question, Lord Jesus, where do you need me to be? Now, please don't stand up and walk out of here because I think he needs all of you right here. <laughs> How can I join this fellowship and be part of the unifying service there or or here? Rather than, I like this about this church but over there they got this going on and over to this so I'm now I am an automobile going to be serviced at different locations instead of being part of the service instead of coming to say look I'm part I've been really enjoying watching you all the last really the last week it's been cool out on the hillside after the worship and watching people just not even ask but start breaking things down and carrying equipment back in and, and, and tending to one another and, and then on Sunday at the Hot Dog Fellowship people are passing out things and sharing things and, and breaking down and, and, and setting up and all this stuff and, and people in the kitchen talking and laughing together and getting it all ready and not even thinking about I am serving the Lord here. <laughs> just doing it and that's, that's the right heart. That's when my marriage is blessed, when I just serve and she hasn't even asked me. When I'm doing the honey-do list before she's written it, that's good stuff. (laughs) Where do you want me, Lord? Now, listen, I'm not saying this in judgment of anyone. This is just how human beings tend to roll. We check the box. How does this fit my needs? If we move to a location, we say, how will this home fit my needs? It's a very natural thing. We choose the grocery store based on what we like best about it. Safeway's a train wreck, so I'll go to Hagen. I know it's more expensive, but there's less people. Someone might say. (laughs) It's really an, an evening of confession on my part. No, it's, I'm going, I, it's a natural thing to say, I want, to, I want this and I need that and let's make sure we have this. I do that when I go buy an automobile. I do that in, in every aspect of life. So we come to church and we do the same thing. What do they have? What do they offer? How will this meet the needs of my family instead of, boy, I could really serve Jesus here. I could really get involved with, these people love So I could do this and become a unifying factor in the church. Consider the example, verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them. Which means his glory is already on us. We're already getting some glory. As the Bible says, we are being changed, transformed from glory to glory. That they may be one just as we are one. Jesus, God the Son, says to Yahweh, God the Father, I am in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. Man, what does that oneness look like? And the reason I mentioned marriage is because God gave us marriage for the example. Genesis chapter two, verse 24, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now, please, I am not sitting in judgment of where anyone is right now, whether you've had uh, one marriage or two or a failed marriage or, that's not, that's not the point here. The point is that originally the idea, the picture of marriage was given that two become one which is absolute unity. And that word, one flesh, is a huge Hebrew word. I'll come back to it. Matthew 19, verse four. Jesus said, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. That word one is, is, is what God gave us marriage for us to start to comprehend. Okay? I'm giving you, I'm giving you this picture of marriage. And let's, let's just, so we can set aside all other things, let's, let's just say the ideal marriage. If you can imagine, what is the perfect marriage? It is where a husband and a wife are singular in walking together so unified that they are together on everything. That's kind of the ideal, right? It's what we all want. It's not what Cheryl got, but it's what we all want (laughs) is that kind of unity. The word one, Matthew 19, that Jesus uses that's translated from the Greek word, the word is mion, which is the adjective of heis. I know that's really important to you all. It doesn't matter. But the word one there, it means singular. It's a singularity of oneness. That word is the Greek word that the Greek translators translated from the Hebrew word in Genesis two twenty four. one flesh, achad. And achad is a plurality of one, which is awesome. How do you get a plurality of one? The triune God. Or marriage. Or the church. The church is to be achad a plurality of one, one church, one body to our one Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, one church. And what the world doesn't understand and what sometimes we can forget is we're still one church. I don't care what sign you have in front. If you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, we are one church. We may not agree on all points of doctrine. There are critical ones such as Jesus Christ is Lord of all. There are vital doctrines that we will not compromise on, and yet there is a oneness that is a unifying plurality. There are many different fellowships. One church, one church. Hero Israel. And here's the ultimate picture, Deuteronomy 6.4. The Lord is our God. The Lord is one God same word used for God as in Father, Son, Holy Spirit is the word that Adam used for marriage in one flesh. Husband and wife, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. I've often said at weddings that marriage was given so that we could have a, a physical earthly picture of the unified oneness of God. But listen to me. It works both ways. That is to say, marriage is a picture of the two become one just as God is three in one, a plurality of unity. But, perhaps the most amazing thing about the Trinity, about our triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is not the the divine sameness, but it's the divine distinction. Yes, they're one, but they're also three. He is also Father, and He is Son, and He is Holy Spirit three separate persons of the Trinity in absolutely perfect oneness. And that's our example. That's what the church is called to be like. Jesus and us and the Father and him and us and the Father. I mean, it's this amazing. In fact, you can actually use the pronoun they when referring to God because he is they. All right. Whether it's marriage or Jesus' prayer for the church, oneness is at stake. And this comparison to marriage I've spent a little time on is for a reason. It is spot on. Or maybe I should say the comparison to marriage is spotless on. Because after all, we are to be the spotless bride of Christ. And he is calling this amazing unity that he describes in his prayer. It's just I and them, you and me, Father, that they may be, verse 23, perfected in unity. So again, that the world may know that you sent me, and note this, loved them, even as you have loved me. Do you realize that, church, fellowship, brothers and sisters, do you realize that you are loved by God as much as God loves Jesus? I, I can't wait, what? As the Father loves the Son, so the Father loves you and me. That is, I I, I don't even have a word to describe how massive that is. God loves me like he loves Jesus? Yeah, yeah, that's what Jesus just said. That you have sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, verse 24, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me. Stop right there. Can you imagine the first moment that you behold the glory of Jesus? (laughs) No. John tried to describe it before he passed out dead. And Jesus had to raise him up again, you know, restart his heart. Clear. (laughs) And John stood up and what? He saw Jesus in the revelation, saw him glorified. And even the description there, you know, we can read it and go, cool, cool but if we saw this have you ever seen the by the way the artist rendering of revelation chapter 1 it's terrifying it's absolutely terrifying swords shooting out of his mouth eyes on fire i mean it's just scary it's awesome you can't you can't render it jesus says we're going to be caught up and we're going to meet him in the clouds and the moment we meet him in the clouds we're not going to be high fiving we're not going to be going, hey, you're here, awesome, hey, right on, you know, having a big family reunion. We're just all going to be in absolute, total awe because we will see the glory of the Lord. And you know what? When we see his glory for the first time, it will change us forever. I'm convinced, and there, there's, uh, I, I don't know, if it, this is just me, okay? But I'm convinced that the reason why we're, we are transformed in the, in the twinkling of an eye is because we see Jesus. Because in the twinkling of an eye, we will see his glory. And John says, 1 John 3, verse 2, and we will be like him because we'll see him just as he is. That I become glorified, not because of some weird mystical work, but because I come into the presence of Jesus and his glory just covers me. That there's nothing else there. It's just glory. Next thing we know, when we do stop, you know, maybe a billion years into eternity, when we finally stop and look around, or seven years later, whatever comes first, when we finally look around and realize that we're just covered in soaking in this, the righteous acts of the saints, fine linen and glorified and wow. I don't know, it, it, it's amazing. And if this was the prayer request of Jesus that we would be with him in heaven, then we will be with him in heaven. We are going home, brothers and sisters. We are going to be with Jesus. This was his prayer. This is his promise. And so do you feel the love do you feel the love of a Jesus who wants you you think you want him you do i do you think you're longing for heaven we are but but he wants you and he longs for you and he desires you to be present with him And it's the same love, again, that the father has for the son. And he continues in verse 24, and he says, For you loved me before the foundation of the world. The world has a beginning and an end. The love of God does not. The love of God has no beginning. He has always loved. And the love of God has no end. He will always love. God is love, the Bible tells us. He is love. You know, love is not God. God is love. He is the picture, He is the definition of love in and of itself. And He loved Jesus before the foundation of the world because Jesus was before the foundation of the world. And God was before the foundation of the world. And God is love, and love is what they had. And when people tell me, God created us because He was lonely, I say, No, you're lonely. (laughs) God was not lonely. Father, Son, Spirit, there was all the love in the world. But that love was so huge, he wanted to share that. So he made us so he could love us too and we could experience the love that he had with the son before the foundation of the world. Romans eight thirty eight I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. The love with which he loved Jesus before the foundation of the world, that's the same love that is yours tonight in Jesus. Verse 25, O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have made your name known to them and will make it known so that, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. What can I add to that? (laughs) You know, what what can I say? I I told you when we started, Jay Vernon McGee said, I feel holy and totally inadequate to deal with this prayer. What what can I add? What can I say? I mean, I I can just imagine getting up there and going, hey, I, I taught John 17, and Jesus going, yeah, I know, and you kind of messed it up, Rick, but that's okay. It's all right. What can I add to these words? The love of God is the summation of this prayer. It's where Jesus lands at the end. It's the whole thing. This whole prayer is a prayed statement of the love of God. And by the way, the love of God is the summation of this prayer. The love of God is the summation of Jesus' entire ministry, which this prayer is also the summation of. You see what I'm saying? He, He prays, he's concluding. This concludes the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, and he goes to the cross for the fulfillment of his sanctified life. But this is at the end of his ministry, and as much as this prayer concludes his ministry, it is love that is the final word on the life of Christ. If you could give one word for Jesus, that's the only word that I can think of. You might say grace. Well, grace is good. Truth, truth is absolute. Righteousness, of course. Sanctified, yes. But love, that's it. Love sums up Jesus, and this prayer ends with and is the summation of love. And think about what he said. He said back in verse 4, I glorified you on the earth. He says in verse 6, I have manifested your name. He said in verse 8, the words which you gave me, I have given to them. He said in verse 10, all things that are mine are yours and yours are mine, and I have been glorified in them. He said in verse 14, I have given them your word. In verse 22, the glory which you've given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, Jesus, even as we are one. I did it. The apostles didn't do it. And at the end of the age, when we stand before Jesus, you know what we're going to say? You did it. You did it. I didn't do it. We didn't accomplish it. You did it. You did it. He prayed for himself, prayed for his apostles, prayed for us, glorification, sanctification, and unification by his glory, summing it all up by saying, so that the love with which you love me may be in them and I in them. So let me just end with this. Who can pray like Jesus? Anyone can. You don't have to be Jesus to pray like Jesus. You can love. You can pray you can have the heart of God, you can be filled with his Holy Spirit, you can pray like Jesus. So here are some final thoughts that I'll throw out to you and and I just kinda listed these out going back over the prayer I gave you five two weeks ago. So we'll pick up and this is number six for that list of how to pray like Jesus, how to pray like Jesus. Number six, pray for lost wasted lives. Pray for lost, listen, Pray for lost, wasted lives until God says stop. Well, God wouldn't say stop. Well, he has. This is kind of the end of the praying for Judas with one possible exception that I'll show you in a week or two. This is the last prayer where Judas is mentioned and he is now mentioned only as the son of perdition as the life that was wasted. It's over. So Jesus isn't praying that Judas repent, praying that Judas would change his mind He knows Judas is beyond that. Judas is Satan-possessed. It's over. He's gone beyond the point of no repentance. There is a time where the Lord will say, stop praying. He did with Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 16. As for you, do not pray for this people, and do not lift up cry or prayer for them, and do not intercede with me, for I do not hear you. That is a profound statement where at that point God was saying to Jeremiah, the judgment of Judah is now. Don't pray to me to change it, Jeremiah. (laughs) And I wonder if that tells us something of the heart of God that he wanted to change that, but he didn't want anyone asking for it because it was done. Judah was going to Babylon. Judah was gonna fall. Don't pray for them, Jeremiah, God said. Pray for lost, wasted lives until God says stop. If you're praying for someone in your life and you're seeing no change and no no acceptance of Jesus and they're just not coming around and they're just as angry now as they were 10 years ago, I'm I'm, I'm done, I'm gonna quit praying. Has God told you to? If he's told you to, I'm not gonna dispute it. But if God himself has not told you to stop praying, you keep praying no matter how wasted the life may seem because that life may come around after you're gone. You keep praying, you keep interceding. Secondly, or number seven, pray joy. Pray for joy for yourself and for others. I said Sunday, you can ask for it. You're having a tough week, pray for joy. Sinking into a season of depression, pray for joy. I want joy. I don't want what I have right here. I want joy. Pray for it. Pray for joy. Number eight, pray the word, which we talked about recently. Pray the word for yourself. Pray the word for others. Not sure what to pray? Open up your Bible and just start praying a psalm. Number nine, pray for perseverance because you're gonna need it. And I say that with a smile because it's okay. It's okay. I needed perseverance to make it around the track when I was running the 400 in high school. I needed perseverance. I wanted perseverance. I wanted to win that race. It wasn't a bad thing. We're gonna have some tough times ahead. I'm convinced of it. Pray for perseverance so that we can win this race. Number 10, pray for sanctification. Pray, God, set me apart for holy use, your holy use in this world. Pray, number 11, for the unification of all believers in Jesus so that the world will see and know that God sent him. We can ask for this. And I said to our staff this morning, you know what I can't do? I can't unify all the churches in Island and Skagit County. I, I don't have that influence or that power. I, I can't do that. I can't unify all the churches just in Oak Harbor and Anacortes. We could try, but I, I just know the reality. But you know what I can do? I can unify my family. I can call them to Jesus. I can be a part of this fellowship being a unified fellowship and then we can reach out with love and affection and oneness to other church fellowships, not seeing them as different or wrong or off, but as brothers and sisters in Christ who simply choose to worship over there. Pray for the unity of all believers. Number 12, pray to be sent And I don't mean to leave here, necessarily, unless God says go, but pray to be sent out incarnationally, near or far. Just pray to be Jesus to this world. Pray number 13, to see and be changed by his glory. Pray that you're one day going to see him. Align yourself, agree with him in that prayer, but pray that that glory that's already kind of starting to be given would change you. Pray to be changed by his glory. Number 14, pray that the love of God be in you. So simple, you know? These are not like, ooh, profound statements. It is profound. Pray the love of God be in you. Not that you love better or you love to your capability. Pray that the supernatural love of God be in you. Ask him to do that because remember what we finished with here, Jesus goes all the way through the prayer saying, I did it, I did it, I did it, I did it. Pray that he does it in you. And finally, whatever shape or practice of your prayer life is in, so so maybe you're out of practice or maybe you're just not that good at prayer, self-judging. Maybe you just don't know how to pray or you struggle to even find the words. or you, Listen, let me just simply suggest this final thing. Start and end the day with prayer. Very simple. Don't, don't try to do anything. Just start and end the day with prayer. It's been said, I need to see Jesus' face before I see anyone else's. Right? I mean, normally I think I need that first cup of tea before I see anybody else. I need to see Jesus' face before I see anyone else's. And at the end of the day, my best rest is always when I leave the day with Jesus. So start and end your day, and that's how you pray like Jesus. Lord, we want to be just real with you because we want to be like you. I pray, Lord, that we would be a sanctified people, not holier than thou or, or righteous in our own estimation, but but truly set apart as people who are washed by the blood, set apart now for your holy use in this world. I pray that there would be, oh Lord, conviction in us that we not do the worldly things, but really step out of that so that we can have your influence. I pray that you will unify the church, Lord. And ask above all that we've talked about and heard you pray for Jesus, I just pray that your love would be in us. I pray you would make the bridge fellowship the most loving fellowship that any of us have ever been a part of. And that that love would spill over. I pray your love in us, even fathers, you love the son, that that love be in us. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.